Welcome to our first ASGE Listen In GI Endoscopy podcast series. Tonight, the title of our podcast is Diagnostic Evaluation of Pancreatic Cystic Lesions. And we are joined by Dr. Sam Krishna, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Sam is the Director of Clinical Research there, and he's within the section of Pancreatic Disorders and Advanced Endoscopy. And we chose Sam to talk about tonight's topic because he's really an expert in this area and has certainly been quite prolific in terms of research and publications uh, in this arena. And so, Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to speak with you. Oh, thank you very much for giving this opportunity. You're welcome. Well, I want to start off with a, a basic question here and ask you this. You know, there's been a lot that's changed over the past decade with how we work up pancreatic cystic lesions. The guidelines have changed. I think it's all fairly clear that with benign looking lesions that are at least two centimeters in size and don't have any high risk, worrisome morphological features, my question is, Is are we done with, or are we going to move on from just simple EUS FNA, where we sample the cyst fluid in this scenario, send it for cytology, amylase, and CEA, and make our decisions based on this? Are we done with this sort of classic strategy of sampling, or is there something else that we should be doing now? I want to get your initial thoughts on that. So, in... Kind of a straightforward answer is we are probably done with just CEA, cytology, and amylase. In this current age, uh, we need to be more precise in our diagnosis, reaching uh, the specific cyst type uh, as kind of the outcome of management. So while cyst fluid aspiration alone can be sent for next-gen sequencing, uh, and so also now there is recent interest in cyst fluid glucose as well, um, while both uh, next-gen sequencing and glucose need, still need multi-center validation, uh, this can still be used. Uh, the reason I quote glucose is because of the cost factor. Uh, now, there's a recent paper from the Cleveland Clinic showing that combining cisfluid CEA and glucose, they have a much higher accuracy in kind of nailing down the diagnosis of mucinous cyst. As far as next-gen sequencing, there is a, a great study from uh, UPMC from Dr. Singhi showing a very high accuracy for mesenocystic lesions. So also there is data showing um, a higher accuracy in picking up IPMNs with advanced neoplasia, that's high risk, uh, high grade dysplasia or carcinoma. Now again, uh, this uh, needs multi-center validation. Uh, as such, uh, many cyst diagnostic workups are kind of from single centers. So uh, just sending cyst fluid for CEA, amylase, and cytology uh, for a two centimeter plus uh, cyst is probably not appropriate these days. So that's a, a great lead into my next question. And you, you touched upon it with DNA molecular analysis, or as you call it, you know, next generation sequencing um, to try to gain further insight in terms of the actual type of cyst or, you know, the prognostic um, sort of um, capabilities of the cystic lesion, trying to prognosticate the cyst a bit more. So let me ask this question, is 
everybody, is it appropriate to get DNA molecular analysis or next-gen sequencing in every cyst that you sample for cyst fluid for, for amylase CA cytology? Should we be doing this in everybody? Or are there people right now that you don't do next-gen sequencing in? Personally, uh, at uh, the Ohio State University, I mean, we send uh, every fluid sample for a DNA analysis. Now, this is center-specific, and the availability of next-gen sequencing varies. Some centers do ship it to UPMC. Uh, they have a standard uh, panel called the pancreas sec, and um, insurance can be built for that. We have kind of established an in-house uh, kind of a genomic, in association with genomic pathology, we have an in-house uh, lab, which will uh, analyze this for us. Now, now so, for just not, so just to interrupt there for a minute, so you're not, are, are you sending yours out for commercial uh, DNA molecular testing? Uh, for example, the, you know, com a common one that is people use Interpace or something like that, or are you just all in-house at, at, at Ohio State? Uh, it's all in-house, and we have that really helped us subsidize the cost significantly. Uh, some of the community hospitals here do send it out for the commercial panel, uh, and sending it out to UPMC is much cheaper than the than sending it out to the uh, commercial panel as well. But again, the practices differ um, at uh, various centers. Now, the the benefit of just aspirating fluid is, of course, using it. 22-gauge needle and getting cis fluid, uh, which is technically much easier for most uh, endoscopists. Now, as far as just sending the aspiration for, compared to just sending the aspiration for CEA MLAs, where again, most of us are familiar with the accuracy being modest between 65 and 70%, the accuracy of molecular analysis just for differentiation is about 90%. That's misiness versus non-misiness. But furthermore, it can kind of nail down the diagnosis as IPMN or mesinocystic neoplasm uh, or uh, the VHL showing serous adenoma, or also there's a specific gene for pseudopapillary neoplasm. Okay. Interesting. Um, good. Let me sort of take it a step further now. Um, one of the things that's, uh, you know, been written about and clinically practiced uh, over the past couple of years, more and more is the concept of uh, through the needle microbiopsy in evaluation of these cysts. So using a larger gauge, uh, 19 gauge needle and using a small biopsy forceps through the needle and sampling the wall of the cyst. Um, I wanted to get from you, your practice, uh, your thoughts on that um, uh, accuracy and you know, utility in, in routine clinical practice. Sure. Now we kind of step into the next stage where we use a 19-gauge needle. Uh, so microbiopsy forceps, uh, through the needle microbiopsy forceps is uh, fairly easy to do. It doesn't need special training. The complication, which personally I experienced, is the risk of intracystic bleeding, specifically in mystinosis and specifically in IPMN. And so also the elevated risk of pancreatitis. Uh, the risk of pancreatitis is kind of spread across the literature anywhere from 4 all the way to 10%, including one reported death in a recent uh, European study where they had about 100 patients enrolled. Mm. And in fact, I did write a letter to editor asking, you know, uh, more details about this. And it was a patient with IPMN who had pancreatitis and uh, there was one death. Mm. So 
uh, it's fairly safe in my experience in serious cardiomas, and that's kind of where personally I use it. Uh, we do use endomicroscopy. We do get an initial indication that this is serious cardiomas. And I do want to get some piece of tissue so that the surgeon who has referred the patient has kind of a histopathological documentation that this is serious cardiomas. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the only other point I use it is if uh, after using endomicroscopy, the diagnosis remains uh, a mystery, uh, then I do use uh, to get a piece of tissue for the histopathologist. So again, in this technique, uh, it takes multiple passes to get a decent amount of tissue, and it does take some time. And uh, after having done quite a few of this, uh, still find it a challenge to good, uh, get a good diagnostic specimen. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I'm wondering, do you, when you speak to patients about the procedure and informed consent, if you're planning on doing microbiopsy sampling you know, through the needle, do you, do you talk specifically about a, a heightened risk of acute pancreatitis? You know, we're used to telling patients a uh, chance of pancreatitis with just a routine FNA is probably about one or two percent overall. This is, you know, potentially substantially higher. I'm wondering what your practice is. So I do tell them uh, that there is an increased risk of pancreatitis, at least theoretically with a 19 gauge needle. Uh, in fact, the cross sectional area between 19 and 22, there is an increase by 50 percent. Uh, if you kind of do the geometry uh, area calculation. So um, there is, I, I tell them at least it's twice the risk of using a 22-gauge needle, but the benefit is that we do get an accurate diagnosis. Okay. And, uh, of course, uh, if patients are willing to consent, then we proceed with the procedure. Okay. So you, you, you also spoke about um, NCLE or you know, needle-based confocal laser, laser endomicroscopy. Um, talk about that a little bit and where that fits into your regimen here. It seemed like you were, uh, it's, it seemed as though you were um, sort of using this uh, more more regularly than, than through the needle biopsy and, and also seems like it's used before uh, biopsy uh, sampling. So can you talk about your practice and where, where that fits in? Sure. So we had, uh, we finished one single center study and currently are doing a multi-center study. And at least in the single center study, the median size of the cyst when we used endomicroscopy was three and a half centimeters. Uh, that's uh, about 144 patients and about 68 patients have, undergo- uh, have surgical histopathology. Uh, so this was uh, published in, the, in CGH uh, early in 2020. Now, generally, uh, if a cyst is uh, anywhere about 2.5 centimeter, uh, unless I'm strongly suspecting a cystic neuroendocrine tumor, uh, then I'm kind of restricting the procedure to two and a half or about three centimeter. Uh, as such, the practice is to use it when uh, we think that uh, doing this does change management, uh, where we can ha- where having a specific cyst diagnosis does help in managing the patient. Mm-hmm. Now, there... uh, mm-hmm. uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Keep going. So, um, of course, we do get consent, and uh, at this time, the current practice is to do all patients on a study protocol. Uh, There is a study consent as well. And uh, the first, you know, we preload the 19-gauge needle, and then um, we uh, approach the cyst and actuate the needle inside the cyst. And there are two aspects to endomicroscopy. One is the technique aspect, and the second is interpretation of the images itself. And um, uh, it takes, there is a learning curve, 
And um, uh, so far, we, you know, after doing so many cases, almost 95% of the cases, or more than 95% of the cases, within two or three minutes of going in the cyst with the probe, we uh, end up having a, a specific diagnosis of the cyst type. Mm. So, and then in those remaining 5% five, five of the patients where it gets challenging, then uh, we use uh, microbiopsy forceps uh, just so that we have a piece of tissue and then we can do some immunostains. And typically it ends up being one of the rarer types of cysts, uh, a squamous uh, epithelial line cyst uh, or other rare types. Are your, are your surgical pathologists sort of accepting of your um, NCLE uh, interpretation of the pathology, um, or are they more really reliant upon, you know, what you're going to get with a uh, microbiopsy forceps? So as far as our surgical team goes, we have had an excellent collaboration and endomicroscopy is an accepted diagnostic standard. And we discussed the results of endomicroscopy in the tumor board. And uh, uh, we can also show the images, the, you know, in fact, the images of the papillae of IPMN are kind of beautiful you know, in microscopy. So very impressive images. Uh, so yes, they are very accepting. As far as the surgical histopathologists, now uh, they're also involved in the uh, decision-making. They're also participating in the uh, multidisciplinary tumor board. And they're also accepting. In fact, I have uh, quite a bit of collaboration with them. In fact, the very first study where we compared endomicroscopy to histopathology was uh, with our one of our uh, uh, surgical histopathologists where mm. The pancreas was resected, uh, and then we brought it uh, to the pathology lab, and then we did pinpoint endomicroscopy examinations and did biopsies from the same area, trying to correlate what we saw in endomicroscopy to histopathological findings. Uh, and off late, we are looking at uh, different different staining other than just fluorescein to see if we can identify advanced neoplasia with higher accuracy. Uh, again, uh, talking about collaboration. So yes, there is good acceptance. Uh, I think probably driven by all the amount of work which has been done in this field, uh, there's good acceptance from the surgeons and from the surgical histopathologists. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I certainly, you know, I think as we as we discussed in the very beginning, I think I think we're I, I would agree with you. I think we're sort of done with the old way of just if we're going to needle assist, you know, simply sending for cytology, CE and amylase when we have. A lot of other tools um, to utilize now that can help, you know, with the diagnostic management. So, Sam, this has been great, uh, very helpful. Um, uh, I appreciate you being part of our podcast series, and I really hope uh, that you'll join us again in the future when we talk about other uh, topics related to pancreatic cystic lesions and pancreatic biliary disorders. Thank you. Uh, I just want to uh, bring this uh, our recent work into attention as well. Off late, we have used endomicroscopy for uh, risk stratification of IPMN, where we actually can uh, grade the level of dysplasia. And uh, uh, I hope uh, the listeners uh, can uh, read both these publications in the GIE, where one was developing the model, and then second was kind of validation of the model. And I thank you greatly for uh, giving me this opportunity to uh, talk. You know, and discuss uh, pancreatic cystic lesion, management of pancreatic cystic lesions. Terrific. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you very much.